Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What is crack-a-lacking, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan the Valley coming at you with a mailbag podcast. Before we get started, my usual reminder, subscribe if you haven't done so already. If you're on YouTube watching me right now, hit that sub button, like, comment on every video to help the algorithm love us back. If you are subscribed, subscribe to us to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Leave us ratings and reviews on Apple. I can't stress enough how much that helps. We've seen some ratings, but reviews also go a long way too. So please head over there. It takes a few seconds out of your day. If you've done all those things, word of mouth recommendations. Tell people about us. We appreciate the shout outs on Twitter. I've gotten DMs shouting us out. Make them public. Tell me you've recommended people. If you convince someone to listen to this podcast, I want to hear about it. Join our Discord. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description. So go head on over there and follow us on all the socials is another way that you can help the show show those are all listed in the youtube and podcast descriptions they're on your screen at hardwood knox on twitter and tiktok at hardwood underscore knox on ig and finally the best way to support the show financially if you want to throw super thanks or whatever they're called super whatever on youtube we'd appreciate those um and then just buy a bunch of merch for yourself for family members friends acquaintances random people you just want to give swag to the link to our store is in the podcast and youtube descriptions too. all the links that you need right there so please continue to support the show love every single one of you who continue to come back and listen let's dive in to this mailbag though uh, a lot of really good questions uh some of which yeah one of them man I, I had to think long and hard about but let's begin with mike h who in your opinion is the most overrated coach in the nba prior to this season i'd say doc but he's out of the league now i think it's jason kidd was bad in brooklyn stunted player growth in milwaukee and his time in dallas has been fine jason kidd's probably a good one but he almost feels properly rated at this point to me because people generally just don't like him and he's become a meme uh, the name that I think we probably need to start discussing, and I know that they've been a fantastic regular season team, and I know that they've been able to overcome absences to um, key players, but the offense has just been so vanilla, too reliant on offensive rebounds and getting out in transition. Is that a personnel issue? It might be. Taylor Jenkins might be time to have a conversation about him, potentially. I know he's like considered coach of the year candidate type deal. I just don't get inspired when I watch uh, Memphis's offense. Maybe giving him a full year of Luke Kennard, that'll be fair. Um, beyond that, I don't know. When I was going through this, I don't know if there are any coaches that feel overrated. I mean, you can go with Billy Donovan, but like, why? He's not overrated. He's like the perfect Bulls coach for this roster because he just fits the essence of, of the Bulls at large. I really don't know who it is among um, the employed coaches because you could talk about coaches that maybe you necessarily don't like or on the hot seat like Wes Ansel Jr. in Washington he's not overrated because you're just saying oh he's overrated by being employed which is kind of fucked up to go that way another name 
just how does Minnesota's offense fare with all these weapons with Chris Finch? He's supposed to be like this offensive mastermind and they were pretty vanilla last year. Was that more to do with injuries than anything else? Just names I'm watching. Actually looking at this, I'm pretty impressed that you don't go into this thinking, Oh, like coach so-and-so is just overrated. Could, you know, do we need to have a conversation with Frank Vogel? Like how does his, how does he um, instill defense into this Phoenix Suns roster? That might be something to monitor. And so when I even say overrated or when Mike H says overrated, it's almost like not an insult right now like like we would i think we need some more samples from other guys where it's if you think Ime Udoka is right there we obviously can't go with um the first timers that doesn't make sense um and, and even just like someone like a willie green has been i would say by and large phenomenal in new orleans i think some are not necessarily happy with um some of the rotation decisions that he has made but like he's really given them some serious or real and genuine and effective defensive principles i just like i even like you know, Steve Clifford in Charlotte, like I really like him. There's just, there's not a name that springs to mind for me at the moment. Like maybe, maybe is it Nick nurse? Like, let's see what he does in Philly. He was known as this sort of this offensive mastermind and Toronto was really inspiring. So, you know, Taylor Jenkins, Chris Finch, Nick nurse, when we're looking at coaches that are viewed highly, that maybe are just overvalued here. I think that's what we need to start um, getting into a little bit. Uh, fun question to think about, especially from Mike Gage, who I know fucking loves the the coaching just grind, I guess, in the NBA. Like, ask him who's the eighth assistant on the, the Phoenix Suns or the eighth assistant on the Charlotte Hornets, and, and he'll probably know. Uh, Pito asks, how bad is it actually going to be during next year's offseason, considering all the pending but very likely contract extensions of Jalen Brown, Pascal Siakam, Anthony Davis, etc., that are going to decrease the value of free agency and the low amount of talent in the draft class. Um, quick note just on the draft class. I don't know nearly enough about it, but we've gone into shitty draft classes before, and you can look back and like the class of 2013 be wildly disappointed overall. I feel like you can always still get excited about any draft class, that there's always at least one franchise-altering talent there. And like you can pepper in a handful of impact players that maybe are drafted later in the first or the second round. So I don't think... Uh, we need to just wait and see. Like Maybe the impressions of this incoming draft class change. I will say, um, when you're looking at free agency, um, I would expect one of Paul George or Kawhi Leonard to reach the open market, if not both. They, they each have player options. Uh, I think... Jalen Brown will sign an extension. I don't know what to think about Anthony Davis. I think even if he doesn't sign an extension, it'll just be okay. Like let's tack on because the way the early termination option is set up um, and the way you extend off of player options versus early termination options. Could he decide to go to free agency and just resign with the Lakers? Yeah, maybe that'll be uninteresting. I don't know about Siakam. I'm just, I talked to um, S. Barahini about this on our last podcast, sort of ranked the most likely outcomes for what's going to happen. If he gets traded, I don't know that he signs an extension. It might be worth it to him. I mean, it would be worth it to him um, once a team can actually offer it, but he might decide to explore the open market at that point. So I think I think there's a chance he could reach. If he stays in Toronto, if he doesn't get traded, it's probably because he signs an extension, though. But he also might want to wait and see if he qualifies for the Supermax. I don't think Toronto would give it to him, but that's something he could do. Um, there are, I think, good non-superstar names out there. OG Ananobi is probably going to hit free agency. I'd be shocked if he signed an extension, even with the new rules. Clay Thompson, maybe an extension candidate. Nick Claxton is going to be a fascinating free agency. By and large, though, and they're like, you could throw some restricted free agents in there, like Tyrese Maxey. Okay, great. Like he's not, he's not leaving. Like, it's just the restricted free agency is a fucking sham. I'm still aggravated that no team threw the poison pill at Austin Reeves just to maybe fuck with the Lakers' books or try to try to call their bluff. 
I need to stop too many curses words on this podcast already so far. I, I just free agency has changed. The dynamic of it has changed. The best players for the most part are no longer reaching free agency because it's worth it for them to sign extensions and then ask for out later. We've seen it with Kevin Durant in Brooklyn. We've seen it with Damian Lillard now in Portland. It's kind of get the money, figure out the rest later. And yeah, there might be players who are stars that are extension eligible. Let's use Giannis Antetokounmpo this summer. He can only tack on two additional years. So it doesn't necessarily make sense for him to sign an extension yet, but it will when he can tack on additional years. And then if they want to get out, you work something out after the time has passed and you become eligible. Free agency is just like totally almost scuttled at this point. Like there is still, you get a Fred Van Fleet leaving like he did this past year. But like, I would say a player on OG Ananobi's level, or like a Fred Van Fleet level, like those feel like the biggest names we're going to see leave via free agency, unless any of these rules change or unless the infusion of TV money, like does the, you know, the salary cap going up, but only by a max of 10%. Does that get some guys thinking about hitting the, the open market sooner or is the money, the one thing that I could maybe see happening here, does the money get just so astronomical players are not necessarily concerned with maximizing every dollar because they're just the bigger names, the stars know that they're just going to get paid regardless. Um, and that it's going to be like wild money because we're getting to that point where yes, percentage of the salary cap, these 50, 60, eventually $70 million salaries because they're headed that way. Uh, they're, they're going to be the same, you know, a set a 35% of the salary cap or whatever, but like just the sheer sticker shock of that much money in one season, does it get to a point where players will just value the the ability to choose or try to get to a different location or see what's out there, knowing that they could either resign with their incumbent team um, or that even if they're taking less, it just doesn't fucking matter because they're still getting in the 200 plus million dollar range over the life of their deal. That's something I could see happening. Um, but yeah, just the way everything is set up right now, I don't know is, if free agency is ever going to have a renaissance. And I look, I think when you're looking at next offseason specifically to actually answer Pito's questions, I, I knew more of the tax apron rules are going to kick in. So it's going to get even harder for teams in the second apron to operate right now. They can take back 110% of salary in trades. That's going to go down to hundred um, percent the aggregation rules will get tougher. But when you're looking at just the penalties, there'll be teams that might be looking to duck that even the first apron more as they get to understand this. And so we could see a bunch more trades. And so I would expect the trade markets who pick up in the coming years, just as teams try to grapple with the ramifications of, of the new basically like i guess soft hard cap whatever like whatever you want to call it just these new cba rules and so i don't think next off season is going to be a sham there will be like always will be being held hostage by like one or two or or three guys um whether it's a trade request or a team like in toronto's case that's really just looking to move uh, this guy so yeah but look free agency i get it i mean it would be a pretty like if for some reason Siakam and Anthony Davis and Paul George and Kawhi and OG and Clay all at the open market, that might be in theory one of the more interesting free agency classes that we've seen in quite some time. Usher asks, one of the biggest talking points I hear about the Suns, besides defense, is who is going to orchestrate the orchestrate the offense. Why does it seem like there isn't a ton of faith in point book being a success? Is it small sample size? And because he had a true point guard next to him, is there any evidence stats that can help us make uh, inference whether point book will or will not succeed? Love the show as always. There's kind of a second part to this question too. Um, but let's just, you know, actually we should probably into the second part first. And so Usher also asks, do you need a tr to have a true point guard to have an elite offense? And the answer is no, just because the definition 
of point guard has changed just as we're kind of moving away from positions. Like as long as you have a quarterback, these initiators who, even if they're not the most talented passers, if they can at least react to the attention that they're getting um, or just generate and hit really difficult looks for themselves. Like if you took, like take Luka Doncic as an example and remove the passing elements of his game, like take it from a, you know, he's like a 15 out of 10 on a scale of one to 10, move it down to like a five. But just because he's so he can score at every level and efficiently and hit these tough looks, he could be the driver of an offense. And now we kind of saw it with the Clippers last year where, yeah, their offense spent a lot of time in the gutter. But when they played with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, who are good secondary initiators, but they're not they're not Luca. They're not James Harden, like the bigger point guards who maybe, you know, in James Harden's case, didn't even start out as a point guard in his career. They're not like these A plus plus passers. So you put Paul George and Kawhi Leonard on the floor. You take off any minutes that could have been with Russ Waller, Reggie Jackson. And I know that the tenures there didn't necessarily overlap, but you want to remove any of the minutes that had either one of those three on the court with PG and Kawhi. The Clippers still ranked in the 99th percentile of offense during that span. The sample size was not like massive again, because Paul George and Kawhi Leonard didn't play in a shit ton of games, but like you can get by just having elite offensive players who aren't necessarily elite point guards. And by that, I mean, not necessarily coming down to the size or the position, but when looking at the passing, the table setting ability is that you can get by having two B, B plus passers. If those guys are also, of course, a, a minus defenders, but if they're a, a plus scores, that goes a long way as well. And I'm not talking ball stoppers. Like you don't, you want someone who is going to be, I would say better than a Julius Randall type passer. And I, I would throw Kawhi and, Paul George, I would probably at least trust them more, and they it feels like they can score at different levels. Um, so you can build an offense that way, which is why I don't necessarily get the concern with the Suns. Um, to to let's focus on the Booker element of this for a minute, because part of it probably has to do with Booker, where I don't think maybe you know the sample size has not been huge. He logged as the official point guard last year, only 106 possessions. The Suns' offense was in the 99th percentile. That's like like it's just such a small sample size. Um, so you're not really seeing it, but there are also like you dig deeper and you see minutes. And like, so he did play without CP three or pain on the floor, about 530 possessions. Uh, the sun's offense was also in the 99th percentile during that stretch. So he's been on the court where he is the primary playmaker or as close to it. But I just think because he played next to CP three specifically, he's never been viewed in that vein. And it's really weird because we're talking about, I don't know where I would rank him when it comes to, passers in the league but like he is one of the most complete offensive players in the game right now bar none he is a more complete offensive player than Bradley Beal just because you can look at his off-ball movement and like while Kevin Durant might even have the higher ceiling when you look at what Booker's able to do as he like moves around off the ball and I'm talking like if he needs to hit you know those quick fire jumpers or if he's you know, putting pressure on the rim because of his off ball movement, but you're looking at also the way he runs an offense as a passer. Like, yeah, Kevin Durant is again, one of the greatest players of all time, better than Devin Booker in theory. Um, although we did just see a postseason where Devin Booker spent most of the time as the sun's best player, even though Kevin Durant was on the floor, his passing, like, it is improved probably each and every season, some by larger margins than, than others, but he's gotten so good that just like, you're going to see more incremental improvements here. And he can throw really difficult lobs, really difficult pocket passes, really difficult skip passes. He'll take chances in the full court. We've seen 
Um, I can't remember. There's like two passes that he threw to Mikael Bridges in transition. I don't think it was this season. It might have been like last playoffs. I don't even fucking remember. But they're just like these like whip it bounce passes across the entire court, like from one end to the other through the defense, like threading the needle. There may be like there are fewer than 10 guys who can throw that type of a pass. And Devin Booker is one of them right now. I do think he can telegraph some of his reads, especially when he's looking for big men. He can become really like zeroed in on it. But he just throws the ball through traffic so well or uses the right height and different angles because it's not just a chest pass or a lob um, or a bounce pass or just a basic pocket pass. Like he can do all like make all these different types of passes. So he's a more versatile passer and also does it while he's under control. And so looking at the past six years, which is when 2017, 2018, that's when he really started to ratchet up his playmaking and his on ball skills. Um, he has had an assist rate over 26 and under 13 of everyone who has logged at least 10,000 minutes during this span. And that's still less than 2000 minutes a season. It wasn't just some arbitrary number. I thought 10,000 was okay. These guys have played a bunch, but who has also hit those benchmarks and assist rate over 26 and turnover rate under 13. Um, the only other players to join Booker are Damian Lillard, Fred Van Fleet, Spencer Dinwiddie, DeJounte Murray, Steph Curry, and Kyrie Irving. Um, I should have double checked. This is weird that LeBron is not on here, right? Uh, he is not. I just want to make sure, make sure that he's not in there. That's like legit company. And we're talking about, I know Murray kind of moved to a more of an off guard role. And Fred Van Vliet has always played off the ball a ton. Say what you want about Steph Curry. But like those are what people would consider more, definitely more, more sort of conventional point guards. No, there's nothing conventional about Steph and Dame and Kyrie, yada, yada, yada. But relative to what Devin Booker is, yeah, they would definitely be considered more conventional points. And Devin Booker is part of that company. Now, am I going to be interested to see what happens if, I don't think they'll spam it the way they did with CP3, um, but Devin Booker, you know, by and large through the seasons, we've seen pick and roll initiation account for like 25% to 30% of his possessions. I think there might've been a season or two where he was over. If you really like juice that up, jack it up to 35%, 40%, 45%, or re again, really spam him as a pick and roll initiator. Does that change? And I do think part of the benefit of what makes him such a good passer is because he's able to focus on scoring um, more, uh, if at, at worst equally there, does that dynamic change at all? I know the son's name, Bradley Beal, their point guard. That's more of a, just a size thing there to me because Devin Booker is the best passer on this team, better than Durant, better than Beal. So I'm curious to see how he holds up in a role. That's going to really call for him to do it more. I think he's going to thrive, honestly, like maybe the scoring comes down, but we might see him average. Like, I don't know if he's a 10 assist guy and like the way they might run their offense just because you have Beal and Durant. There, there's going to be so much you know, equity like divested among all three of them. And then also just like, is this going to be even an assist heavy team? So I don't want to throw it there, but like, I'm not saying he's going to be the next Luke or James Harden when you're racking up these assist numbers, but like, this is going to be a year where I think he probably has a bunch of double digit assist games or that we could see him average like eight or nine per game, because I think I trust his passing that much. And I would fully expect the Suns' offense to still be elite. And, I don't think they need to be a great passing team because they have these three top end scores. When it comes to the Suns, as Usher mentioned, um, it is more about, okay, what does it look like with their defense? Um, Aiden's going to be a huge part of that. How does their death pan out in the sense, yeah, they really won the minimum contract game, but we always say that about certain teams and how many of those do they actually hit on? More to the point, do their does their big three stay healthy enough to where like, you don't have to rely too heavily on that depth? 
and on that minimum contract depth. And so those, those are all big and fair questions. The offense itself is just not a question. This team is, regardless of how they get their buckets, even if I've just overestimated Devin Booker's passing to the upteenth degree, um, this team is going to be, uh, if they're not a top five offense, I something seriously, I would imagine, has gone wrong. Someone is having the worst season of their career. There's been a bunch of injuries, some combination of all three. Um, you just look at these guys. I think that they're built, you know, you could see the Suns getting a little bit too mid-range happy last year. I think that Devin Booker's one going to be able to adapt his game. He's just one of the most scalable players in the league. Two, Bradley Beal changes the the scoring distribution for this team, where I think he can put more pressure on the actual basket. And even if he's living too much from the mid-range of points, he's still going to be able to get to the to the foul line. And I think he's someone who will be comfortable, like kind of um, not like titrating up his his three-point volume as well. Duran has always been sort of iffy there. So this team is going to be great, and Devin Booker, again, one of the most complete offensive players in the game. And so calling him the de facto, let's call it a floor general. Let's not even call it a point guard. If if that it's that if that's what he has to be, if there is going to be more responsibility than even we think um, it, right now is going to be put on his shoulders, the Suns are going to be more than fine. And I can't, I cannot bring myself to worry about offense at all with this team, regular season, playoffs, whatever. Uh, next question comes from the Farkas. This was a good one. Which team is more likely to be a higher seed within their conference, the Mavs or the Pacers? Going, Trying to go through the teams that'll be definitely better than both of them in their conference. So for the Mavs in the West, the teams that'll be definitely better than them, I have the Nuggets, the Suns. I'd probably throw the Pelicans, Kings, Clippers, and Warriors in there. The Lakers, Timberwolves, and Grizzlies, and Thunder are maybes for me. Teams that are definitely better than the Pacers in the East, Heat, Bucks, Celtics, Cavs. I think you should throw the Knicks in there. And then maybe the Hawks, maybe the Nets, maybe the Bulls, maybe the Sixers. What's going to happen in there? Could the Pistons or Magic sort of sneak in here? Uh, I, I think I'd be inclined to, when you're looking at the landscape, you should probably side with the Pacers, but I'm just wondering with them relying on young guys more where assuming Jarris Walker is healthy, he's going to play a bunch. And then I would assume that they're going to also increase Benedict Mathurin's role and try and experiment with him. I do feel like we could get to a point where we're not going to see like a flat out late season tank, but is this just sort of another rebuilding year for them? I'm not saying they need to tear it down. They have Bruce Brown. Like they should be, I think this team has the potential to be really good, but if you were asking, it's just, it's really tough. I'm going to go with the Mavs just because the two stars, Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic, like they're really entrenched. I might like the balance of the Pacers roster a little bit more, but again, the them investing so much, I would assume developmental equity in Jarris Walker, in Benedict Matherin, even giving Andrew Nemhard a bunch of minutes. That's someone who could look, that's someone who might actually start for their team. Does that, you know, eat into their immediacy? at all the the ceiling in that regard even if like how much are they going to play obi Toppin, and just like if you're going to give isaiah jackson and um jalen smith run this season as well how is that going with us i forget they drafted ben shepherd at number 26 this could still really be another developmental year for them and so i'm going to go with dallas i think they'll be more invested in the here and now and i think even in what could be considered a maybe a tougher conference when you're looking at higher end competition, just the way the off season on, has unfolded. There's the bucks and Celtics kind of at the tippy top of the East right now. Maybe the Cavs can crack that tier. Do the heat get there if they have Dame? But as of right now, it feels like it's the bucks and the heat again, maybe, maybe the Cavs could be there where in the West, like I could see a lot of teams just being like top, top tier, the Suns and the nuggets for sure. 
if the Clippers or Warriors and their health breaks right, and then there's just like a bunch of maybes where the Grizzlies and the Lakers and the, what do the Timberwolves look like? The Kings were right there last season. What if the Pelicans stay healthy? So that I get that is stiffer competition in theory. I'm still going to go with the Mavs. I don't, I wouldn't trust that because I have very little faith in the Mavs. Uh, Nugs asks, why aren't the Nuggets? And by the way, my lack of faith in the Mavs has more to do with, I just, who we trust in to defend wings on this team right now. Is it like, does Dante Exum need to play? And what does Josh Green really look like in that, in that role with nobody else to, excuse me, really help him out? So, it's that's a really good question though. Uh, the far, cause I'm going to, I'm going to go with the maps finishing. Yeah. I'm going to go with the maps finishing higher in their conference. I'm still not sure. The nugs asks, why aren't the nuggets going to be better next year than last Jokic and Gordon, at least as good Murray, better. Another year removed from injury Porter potential to be a lot better with continued health of uh, Latko Chanchar and Zeke Naji getting better and still on the upswing Peyton Watson, a long plus defender, all three look, rookies look like players, especially Hunter Tyson. And last but not least, Reggie Jackson, comeback player of the year. What could go wrong? Look, I think as of right now, they're a worse playoff team without Bruce Brown. The regular season, they should be fine. Um, as Nuggs also mentioned, the Christian Brown kind of stepping into the Bruce Brown role. Here's where I land is just one. I haven't seen the ball skills from Christian Brown or on-ball decision-making of Christian Brown suggests that he can supplant that element of Bruce Brown's game. And I don't think there's anyone else on the roster right now that can do that. And you are dealing with unknowns in the sense that, okay, the Nuggets have done a good job of giving guys shots of, you know, their developmental guys. Uh, but Christian Brown played last year because they thought he was ready. And all I kept hearing was Peyton Watson was ready, but like that wasn't someone who really saw the floor. So Watson and, and Strouther, those are all, those are all mysteries. Um, to us and Hunter Tyson, how much, how many minutes do they actually play? And look, Zeke Naji, they've been trumpeting. They like, they've been calling for the nuggets actively in the organization been calling for the Zeke Naji breakout, predicting it for like three years running. And they just go out, go, go on not to use him. So I need to see this team in action and see the development of these other guys, including Brown to believe that they will be better than they are last year. Because as of right now, by virtue of just losing Bruce Brown, I'm not as worried about the Jeff green, uh, absence i'd rather him than deandre jordan on the roster but whatever um, they are a worse team i do not think they will feel it in the regular season as much but they could really feel it in the playoffs i will say yeah the murray being another year removed from health michael porter jr though is just sort of a swing piece really really interests me just some of the moments he had in the playoffs and i know he struggled a lot with a shot in the the later rounds but as someone just looking at his defense the way he played uh, the aggression with which he crashed the glass, even if it's not evident game to game in the regular season, that is someone who can really kick it another like gear or five. And that changes the entire, well, not the entire, but that ch changes, or I should say buoys the trajectory of what I would still argue is the best team in the league even further. Unbiased Pistons fan. Why didn't the midseason tournament use divisions for their groups? I see no other purpose for divisions. And I think they missed a big opportunity to build rivalries back up. I really like this latter point, not something I had thought about where, you know, we could make, they have division. So like, let's bring back some of these, these rivalries. My guess would be, and they did make sort of a big to do about the way they determined these buckets of teams. Um, they wanted to make sure that there wasn't some wild imbalance and year to year. I think, yeah, some of the fields might look a little bit more imbalanced, but I actually, when Grant and I were going through them, I was actually impressed with how intriguing all of them were. And so this year specifically though, if you had stuck with divisions, Miami, kind of just 
could have rolled through the Southeast division. Could Denver have rolled through the Northwest? I don't mean to just dismiss all those teams in there, but what is, we don't know what's going on in Portland. Utah's kind of going through a rebuild. Like there's talent on those teams. Could Minnesota, are they going to be that good? Is what's Oklahoma city going to look like if they're going to continue to disperse minutes between what looks like a, you know, a 21 man rotation. Yes. I know they can't have that many players under contract during the regular season. So I just think the way that they set it up was to avoid situations. And I, I think the, the best one to use would be the Southeast, unless you're just super high on the Atlanta Hawks, like Miami going up against this year's magic, Charlotte, uh, magic Hornets, wizards and Hawks teams just feels unfair, especially if they wind up getting a, a Damian Lillard. That would be my guess is that they wanted to preserve the parody. And I, I don't know that divisions absolutely uh, actually do that. However, the idea of sort of division rivalries kind of being reborn, super interesting to me. Um, um, but maybe they want also didn't want to give themselves a reason to keep divisions any more than they have, where eventually those have to be obsolete. I'm, I'm convinced the Trey real stroker Murphy. Um, my question is, do heavy teams just not work? Is that a thing of the past? Do we have to watch the KD Nets 2.0 fail to prove that you need at least nine good players to have a chance? Look, I still think a lot of this just comes down to health and a team's willingness to pay that many stars and then continue to make moves to build around them. Where, yes, we can give Matt Ishbia kudos for signing for any CBA nerds out there. Like the way these minimum contracts work is that if you sign a one year minimum contract, teams will get reimbursed. Um, the difference between that and like this scale. So like an Eric Gordon who came in at, what was he at? Um, th they get reimbursed for part of his salary if it's just a straight one-year contract. Now, if you add any sort of like player option to that, you're not going to get reimbursed. And so Kata Bates, Diop, uh, Drew Eubanks, Eric Gordon, Utah Watanabe, all getting player options, the Suns have to pay out of pocket for, that's going to add to their tax bill, basically. So where they could have, you know, in theory saved like a million bucks per player or whatever. Uh, they're not going to do that anymore. So that adds a lot to their tax bill. But then they turn around, they dump Cameron Payne. And we kind of saw the same thing. They turned around and dumped Dario Sharks after making the Kevin Durant trade. They were still willing to put these three stars together and they're keeping DeAndre eight. And so they're su super top heavy for now with, with four guys. It's just, what does the health look like? You have to survive the regular season, you have to be good enough to at least be in a position to where you're not fighting from a deficit in the postseason. And then you need all those guys to be healthy in the playoffs. You're banking on two dudes here who are over the age of 30. There's, there's risk there, but there's also two guys who are on the right side of 30 in Devin Booker and Deandre Ayton. And so if they're, if Ayton has a bounce back year, this team looks a lot different as of right now. I think they're, I don't, I don't want to say clearly because we haven't gone through this. And there's still a lot of off season, um, left to go, but they feel like the second best team in the, the West to me. And look, the Nets, again, if it wasn't for health or Kyrie's being Kyrie, the best way to put it, that team probably has a title. Like I just, you know, they could have had a title depending on what happened. If Kevin Durant's shoe size was, you know, one or, or two smaller. So there are a lot of ifs. And if it was a fifth, we'd all be drunk, all that. I just, I, I think that the model to get to three teams, owners definitely don't want it because of the way that this new CBA just worked out. And it's ultimately cheaper to not have these three guys because it's not just about paying all three stars. That's certainly part of it. It's that there's an expectation. You need to figure out a way to put talent around them and exhaust all your assets necessary. Even the Suns right now, like not just ballooning Tory Craig's salary when they had his early bird rights. He ends up in Chicago. But is Mac Biombo still floating around out there? Or are they going to drum up his salary with early with early bird rights? Um like it's just so expensive that I think, and that's to uh, Trey Real Stroker Murphy's point that you need at least nine guys. 
I just still feel like if you pick the right three guys where they're all at the right points in their career, or if you just get a season of relatively good health, um, I think the issue is when you're forming these three star, you know, these three, these three, these three star, just factions, whatever you want to call them, they're so shallow already. And then you're also getting probably at least two of these stars really when they're on like their third, fourth, whatever contracts. And so they're just inherently older. You're not seeing these formations happen as early in player careers where it's like when the thunder having James Harden and Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, even Serge Ibaka on the same team way back when, um, and even those could get, when you look at Cleveland, like does that get untenable a little bit when you start thinking about next deals for literally everyone else on the roster? I still think that there's a place for heavy teams and that they are uniquely built to shine in the playoffs, but you have to be, you have to either one hit at an exceptional rate, on the margin signings or two, be willing to get creative and spend. And we've kind of seen that with the warriors. Like, yeah, they have all this top heavy star power, but they're always kind of willing to spend. And we've seen them kind of walk back a little bit from that. Um, but they've been able to, even when we think they're shallow, like they have like six or seven guys, it feels like at all times. And so that's, you know, to some extent, Joe Lacob and, and co are, are responsible for that. Um, but it also, it's just so expensive. I think that teams or owners of these teams don't actually want it to be on the table. The fact that they have these additional aprons in place makes it easier for them to opt out of those scenarios or to be, well, Hey, if we even have three stars, like we, we physically can't do all this um, stuff to place even more expensive talent around them. It's just untenable. I don't think the, they might become fewer and further between. I think even now they kind of have, um, they'll certainly be harder if the NBA ever expands to 32 teams. I just think it depends on the three stars you're putting together. They're never going to go away. Like the mystique of it all, uh, they might always happen in the same sort of slapdash fashion where two of these guys are joining another guy. Um, and those two are kind of later in their careers, or at least one of them is, is entering or exiting uh, their heyday rather, I should say. So I don't think they're ever going to go away, but to say that they just, is there a risk there? Yes, but there's a risk in, in everything. And when you look at how hard it is to win a championship, in the NBA, it is so difficult that your risk profile is going to exist at a uncomfortable level, no matter what, just because the nuggets were so deep last year, they weren't guaranteed to win the title. There were so many people trying to poke holes in that roster and their bench was, wasn't even deemed a strength of theirs. Like Boston's depth has been touted to no end. They've still yet to win a title. Um, the depth in new Orleans that was still derailed by poor health. And so there's just so many wild card elements to this, that having three stars, in their prime still, or at least like close to it, whatever you want to say about KD, that still might be the most efficient path to title contention. Is it the most efficient path to winning a title? I'd, I'd probably argue yes, because the chance is just so small that to have these three top 15, top 20 guys in a place at once, or in any given season, they could be three of the top 20 guys, because I don't know where people feel Bradley Beal lands. I don't even know where I think Bradley Beal lands at this point. I haven't given it enough thought. Um, that's why I think the intrigue is still there. If it does get untenable, it's I think it has more to do with the financial logistics than than anything. And I, I don't, you know, you might need at least nine, ten good players to or operable, playable players to get through the regular season if you don't want to tax your stars too much. It all just comes back to to that for me. Is if those three stars are available in the postseason, you've given yourself more of a chance to win a title than most of the other teams in the league. And if you can put yourself in that position um, and maybe look, if you viewed the Suns as sort of faux contenders entering the playoffs this year, that's fine. But like CP three was passed 
is well past his heyday. And like when it's happening mid season like that, you didn't get to go through a training camp or anything. It's a lot harder to come together, no matter how scalable someone like Kevin Durant is. Mike H, what's the best absolutely not happening outcome for the star trade request? And why is it we find out that Dame Miller wants to retire and take up bowling and that James Harden was a figment of our imagination? So let's run through the list here. Kyrie Irving talks to James Harden about teaming up in Dallas would be one. James Harden retires to finance and star in a silent burlesque Broadway play. Damian Lillard doesn't get traded and doesn't report to, to the Blazers because he's recording a single in which Harden and Embiid feature that reaches number 199 on the Billboard Top 200. Damian Lillard ends up with Paul George in LA. That would just be really funny. If we weren't, if I'm not trying to be too sarcastic, some dark horse outcomes to these trade requests slash what I would deem a pending trade request from Embiid. James Harden to Boston would just be like, Boston's really just turned over some stuff some stuff with their roster this year. If they went, we're talking about, Oh, should they go after Dame? If they just decided, no, you know, we're going to go after, we're going to go after Harden because the cost will be slightly cheaper. It's more about making the money work. And then we have to give up fewer picks than we would for Dame. Just that would be, I don't know, Tatum and Brown and Harden. I kind of love that pairing. And I kind of hate it a uh, trio, but I hate it at the same time. Damian Lord to Oklahoma city. Just he's the guy that sent them into this rebuild basically. And then to join it. And I think that they would become title contenders with him if they keep Holmgren, Jalen Williams, uh, and SGA in place. And yes, they have the goods to make that trade while keeping all three in place. I would argue if they really wanted to, you could probably trade for Dame while keeping Giddy, J-Dub, SGA, and Chet Holmgren. I think you probably have to trade Giddy uh, or Dort in that deal, I think. But they, just, they have so many picks, guys. They have so many picks. And then Joel Embiid to either Houston or New Orleans. And I don't think New Orleans would look at Embiid. You don't want to add another big man with a risky injury profile, but, and I, you could talk about, does he shoot well enough? But like he shoots well, Jonas Valanciunas just doesn't have a ton of volume from the outside. So Embiid could play with Zion. And that would just be like these two massive physical anomalies, these singularities as, as human beings and physical specimens. I would just pay so much money to see that together. It just sort of came to me, but Joel Embiid in Houston would just be going back to James Harden stopping ground. That was the team that's supposed to poach James Harden from Philly. And it's the team that sort of fell out of love with him. Um, and then it's just, there's just like a randomness to it where they, they have the goods depending on what the Sixers want. I'm thinking there might be, but yeah, I mean, if you're trading Embiid, you're probably open to more of a rebuild. So their picks and some of their young guys would matter, but all of a sudden you're in Houston and it's like, okay, you have Fred Van Vliet. And then I'm assuming you have at least one of Jalen green or Ahmed Thompson left after this. With Embiid, Dylan Brooks is there. Like, is Tower Easton still as part of that deal? Is Jabari Smith Jr. still there? There's so many moving parts, but Houston with Embiid would just be like, okay, what do, what do we have here? It feels like it's something, but w- what is it actually? I was thought about the Spurs for Embiid. Embiid and Wemby would be just so much fun. Um, but we could go down that rabbit hole for approximately uh, ever. Uh, Next question comes from Muckle, who's had the best offseason so far, and why is it the Summer League champion, Cleveland Cavaliers? Shout out to Isaiah Mobley for winning the Summer League championship MVP, final MVP, whatever it's called. Um, I find a pick. Let's go through some of the tiers that I separate these into. Got a lot better. The Cavs, the Pistons, the Rockets, the Lakers, the Bucks, the Suns, and the Spurs. Kudos for starting over, Bucket, the Washington Wizards. Offseasons I kind of like. Utah and Minnesota, uh, and then this could end amazingly or super poorly, Boston and Golden State. If I had to pick the best offseason, 
am I going to pick the Bucks? Just the Crowder and Beasley minimum signings, and then getting Middleton and Lopez. Lopez's deal was inflated, but it's just so short term. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the Suns, you have Bradley Beals, so like that's easy to throw in there. The Spurs with Wemby, I don't want to. I like some of their other moves, the Julian Champagny, um retention, and I, I, I like getting Reggie Bullock and using your cap space to have campaign and even Jetty Osmond, like real basketball players. Man, I is it the Pistons? I think it might be the Pistons. I love Osar Thompson, and I like the fact that they decided to roll their cap space forward, basically, by getting a Joe Harris, getting a Monte Morris. So the theory of this roster, it's still sort of jumbled a little bit. There's a lot of overlapping ball-dominant talent. Killian Hayes, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Osar Thompson that they have to finish figure out. Um, but the roster also makes more sense because you can get to, yes, I hate the dual big setup, and they still seem like they're semi-married to it, but it's just the way that they have their perimeter rotation set up now or, or that stash of bodies, cache of bodies on the perimeter, you're you're going to see more of Boyan Bogdanovich at the four. Then all of a sudden that just makes so much sense with his shooting. You have Joe Harris to throw in as a shooter. Alec Burks, Monte Morris can still snake his way to pull up middies and, and also stretch the floor himself. I think I think I'm in love with the Pistons offseason. This is I like the Monty Williams hiring as well. That's weird. The Cavs definitely belong in the conversation, Muckle. Um, I could see it just being like we look back and go, wow, like Boston or Golden State took those risks and, and really killed it. Um, Utah, I just I like a lot of the business they did. And Minnesota kind of making the moves on the margins. They didn't do anything just like too nuclear. Uh, Utah getting John Collins, like is that something we could look back on and be like, oh, okay. Look at what they did, and they got creative with their Paul Reed offer sheet. Kind of, kind of screwed over the the Sixers a little bit. I, I like the Jordan Clarkson renegotiate uh, and extend, uh, but just like I think, kind of. I mean, I love. I will say, I love the additions of Bryce Sensabaugh and, and Taylor Hendricks, um, and even a lot of people really like Keontae George. So there's may, maybe it'd be Utah, but I really think I'm looking at Detroit, Cleveland. Do I throw? I, I'm just. I'm not looking at Boston or Golden State. It just wouldn't surprise me if they ended up. One of them ended up being the being the answer here. HP Burgey, what's the best Team USA starting lineup in your opinion? Also, what are some funky lineups they should run? So, I haven't really given much thought to Team USA, and I had to look up and like double check the roster to make sure I wasn't off. My starting lineup would be uh, Tyrese Halliburton, Anthony Edwards, Mikael Bridges, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Walker Kessler, which I think might surprise some people who listen to this podcast, but. Just give me the dual rim protection. And it's everyone at that position is a really good defender there. And you, then you can do things with, okay, Bobby Portis is coming off the bench. So is Cam Johnson and, and Paolo Bancaro. So you have sort of these fringe bigs. Um, that gives you the flexibility, especially with everyone else being able to shoot threes. Just throw Walker Kessler out there. Um, a funky lineup, though, we're going no point guard, no center. So Ant Edwards, Brandon Ingram, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson and Palo Bancaro. I kind of love that that lineup. It's like gets a little bit iffy. Do you think you have enough playmaking? I think just the leap that Mikhail has made. Um, Brandon Ingram's good enough, and Edward really and Edwards really made a leap on that end this year. And I think that you get Palo Bancaro is probably an underrated passer for me, or at least someone who's who's a, a butchering passer. So uh, the no point guard, no center lineup. Sign me up for for that. Austin. Who are you most interested in watching play on a new team next year, not including rookies and why? So three, uh, I'm fascinated by Kristaps in Boston, almost morbidly. So what does that do to their switchability going from Marcus smart to him on defense? What does it do to their playmaking on offense when they were already kind of at a deficit? How does it impact the roles for RW three and Horford? I'd assume we'd 
see a lot of dual big lineups, but uh, Joe Missoula wasn't necessarily in love with those either. Are they throwing Kristaps Porzingis the ball in the post? He was better there this year, um, but their roster is just like, unless you think that he's going to become a really good passer, and he's like, he's okay now. He's made some incremental strides himself. I'm just fascinated to see what kind of impact he has on their team, good or bad and different, all three, whatever. Bruce Brown and Indy really intrigues me. They're, they still, in Indy, just don't have like a, a, a surplus of true-sized wings, but they give Bruce Brown a bunch of space to work with in most of their lineups. And then just by adding him and then Jarris Walker gives you a lot more ball pressure than you had last year. Throw them in lineups with Miles Turner, and I just feel like, and even, you know, like Aaron Neesmith rounded out, maybe Nemhard, like do we see that five-man lineup? Is that their best possible defensive lineup? I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the Pacers. And then Chris Paul in Golden State. He is the antithesis of the Warriors basketball in so many ways, but he has the IQ to adapt. And also just the minutes without Steph or just coming off the bench, whatever, should be fine. You could spam pick and rolls if that's how you want to go. See if he can run it with Kaminga. Uh, even a Dario Sarge could technically help there. Draymond Green could play that role, of course, too. And they, they have Kevon Looney. So if you want to go that route, it's just the fascination is going to be how many minutes is he playing? How many minutes is he playing with Steph? Is he closing? Do we see the Draymond, Steph, CP3, Clay, Andrew Wiggins line up a bunch? Not at all. How does it all come together defensively, offensively? I'm not going to be able to take my eyes away uh, from it. A couple more questions here. Uh, Darkwing Duck. <laughs> yeah, this one was a... I did think about this one, but not in the way that you wanted to. Can any team's last seven players and two-way dudes beat Utah's last seven players and two-way dudes. I love this question since the proper way to look at it is to look at all 450 NBA players and every two-way. That won't take any time at all. For context, if you take a presume, presumed Jazz top eight, marketing, Kessler, Clarkson, Collins, Sexton, Olenek, THT, and Akbaji, you have three first-round picks, Chris Dunn, and Yurtz with a few others. Look, I went about it this way, and there was a little bit more to this. Uh, you just want me to acknowledge the Jazz's depth. They definitely do, do have some intriguing depth here. They have three rookies that I think, I don't know how to feel about Keontae George. Love the idea of Bryce Sensabaugh, and I'm a huge Taylor Hendricks fan, as anyone who listens to this podcast knows. Looking at just the last seven players, I'm not looking at all these two ways. Some of them aren't even filled. Um, but looking at the last seven players of each roster and kind of like go, I would put in the first tier of teams where it's okay, let's look at this bottom seven of the teams. Oklahoma City. New Orleans, and maybe Utah. New Orleans and Oklahoma City, I think, belong on a tier of their own. Utah just has so many rookies involved here, but I'm not sure where to rank them. And then the teams after that, Utah, Detroit could sneak in there. Memphis could be in there. Maybe they even should be in there, it, certainly during the regular season. Maybe the Clippers. Like, when you really start to go through their roster as it is right now, it's possible. Orlando is right there, and that's even if you throw away Jonathan Isaac, which you should in, in more ways than one. Uh, and then the Spurs, like the Spurs are just sort of sneaky deep when you're looking at going to get past their bottom seven guys. But I think the two I would definitely have here at the top, Oklahoma city and new Orleans, I think Memphis, Utah, the Clippers, those are all teams that would probably in Detroit would probably be fighting for a position after that. I'm just not as confident in the Spurs Clippers magic pick. I'd be the most confident maybe in the Clippers there. I don't know. Last question. Am I going to finish this in under an hour? Let me go back and check this time. And the answer is yes. Look at us out here. This is a, this is off-season pacing. Uh, Austin, following up on the mini pod that you did on Joel Embiid, what type of haul would Embiid get considering he just won MVP but also has a lengthy injury history and will only want to go to a top team to win? 
who would be interested and not just anyone besides the Nuggets. Look, this is complicated. Uh, I will say there's value in the team making this decision before the player. And we saw it with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, where it didn't get to a point where either of those guys requested a trade. I'm not sure Rudy Gobert ever would have had the prestige to do so. Could you see a scenario where the team that trades for Joel Embiid gets less than the Jazz got for Rudy Gobert? Absolutely. If Embiid requests out and he gives them a very distinct wish list and teams take that seriously. It's a little different here because he's not on the same yet anyway. Like he's not on the same aging curve as Damian Lillard. We're talking about someone. Yeah, he has his injury history, but he is younger. I think he is he even 30. I don't have to change my seat. I'm getting used to this new um, mic positioning at the moment, which I'm probably going to change. I don't know that I love seeing the stand in the way of everything. Yeah, he's 29. He turns 30. So next year is only his age 29 season. He's already won an MVP. He's playing. He plays both ends of the floor here. That's like, it's going to be an easier sell, even if he doesn't want to be on your team, especially because, or in theory, doesn't want to be on your team. Because if you move him now, and that's what I'm kind of operating on the assumption, you have three guaranteed seasons with him left. And then there's that fourth year player option in 26, 27. So I think if, if I'm just trying to like kind of consolidate the idea of assets, so let's say first round picks or prospects, like the equivalent of first round picks. I think you're probably looking at, if I set the over under at 4.5, I would take, maybe it should, should we set it at 3.5. If it's 3.5, I'm taking the over. If it's 4.5, I'm probably still taking the over where it feels like the team that gets them has to give up three first two players that would be the equivalent at least we're four first and one player that would be the equivalent plus swaps. And so I would say something along the lines of that would be around the five. If you look back at it and we did, we did this with the, um, the jazz trade for specifically um, Rudy Gobert, how many first round picks does that amount to like Walker Kessler counting as a first round pick there? I would say five for Joel Embiid. And that's not including swaps, salary matching, maybe some more immediate, like uh, who was viewed as the, the Lowry marketing in that type of a trade. When you're looking at teams that could be interested, um, it might change depending on the time of the year. Like does Boston come and take a look if they're getting closer to the trade deadline, they have that Kristaps Porzingis matching salary out there. Um, Brooklyn, I could see being interested. I could see Charlotte trying to get involved. I don't think Chicago has the assets. Uh, Dallas doesn't have the assets. Denver, no Detroit has the assets, but I don't know. I mean, they beat in Detroit. You keep Cade. I, I I would actually like it. I just don't know that they would be interested. That really does accelerate their timeline. Golden State would be a no, and they probably don't have enough at this point, just with Kaminga, Moody, and picks. I could see Houston being interested. Indy, probably not, although him and Halliburton could have happened in Philly if they would have traded Ben Simmons for him. The Clippers don't have the assets. The Lakers don't have the assets. The Grizzlies, no. Miami with him and Bam Adebayo would be interesting, but I'm going to say they probably punt on that. Milwaukee, no. Minnesota, no. I want the Pelicans to be interested, and they definitely have the assets. The Knicks will be interested, We, but go check out my conversation with S. Barahini from SDPN Sports about why we kind of think that their assets are losing some of their luster. They're not saying they don't have assets, but if you believe that the Knicks are going to be good, their own first-round picks have declined in value moving forward. Uh, OKC should be interested. Uh, Phoenix doesn't have the assets. Portland, with, like that would have been if Embiid was available 
before this whole Damian Lillard stuff, would you have traded Scoot and Shane Sharp and picks for Joel Embiid? Uh, I don't think they'd be interested now. Sacramento wouldn't be interested. I'd love for the Spurs to be interested, but that would just not be their MO, which just wouldn't be. Toronto, build something around OG and Seattle. Like, would you give a bar? You wouldn't give a Barnes for KD. I don't think you would for Embiid. That might be a sleeper team there. Utah's not going to be interested probably just with the way Ainge uses timeline and they have Kessler in there. And so I don't know if going all in on Embiid makes the, the most sense when you have question marks aside from Larry Markin and basically everywhere else in the roster and then Washington. No. So I would say if I didn't narrow it down to the five most aggressive teams in the Embiid sweepstakes, um, I would say, I think Brooklyn would be one of them. The Knicks would be one of them. That's two. I think Houston, I know they have, I know they have some bigs in there right now, but I think Houston would really try to get itself involved. I want to say that the next two aggressive teams would be New Orleans and OKC, but I just think so differently from those front offices. So I'll throw those. If I had to pick my five favorite Embiid, but but yeah, so three teams, we need two more that would really be involved in the Embiid sweepstakes. Brooklyn, New York, Houston. I don't man. This is... I'm, I'm just trying to, I don't want to pick. There are teams that just the five most. It's not, it's not going to be Boston. Would it be Charlotte? Like, is that something Charlotte would do? New ownership trying to make a splash? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I don't even know if, like, would you guarantee Toronto would be one of the five most aggressive teams? I think I named the three. Uh, I'll go with. We got one of New Orleans or OKC. Like, OKC's got to just... I'm going to throw OKC in there. They have the assets uh, to where you could try and pair him with Chet Holmgren and SGA. So I'm just going to say OKC in there. I had a pick between them or, or New Orleans. And the other one, I don't think it's the Spurs. Would it be Toronto? Like, just trying to wedge open their window in a different way? Probably not. They have Yaka Pertle there, so they can't even make that deal. Right, I'm just going to say Charlotte. That just seems like a team that's going to be like, we would never get this player in free agency. And even if we see this through to the bitter end and just have three years of him, Charlotte, Houston, New York, I'm throwing OKC in there. I don't give a fuck. And Brooklyn would be the five teams I think would be most aggressive. Now, the five teams that I would want to be most aggressive, the Knicks for sure, we can keep them on there. OKC, New Orleans, I just, it just feels like such a, eclectic and eccentric group that would we would end up seeing um detroit i want to see detroit do it i just jalen duran's nice and they have other bigs but no like i want to see detroit do it and then another team i want to see go after Embiid. that might be i don't want to is it might have default to brooklyn chicago just doesn't have the asset juice does does can i talk myself now golden state's offer i don't think would be good enough I might just stop at those four teams. It'd be really funny if Memphis was just like, fuck it, we're going to try and pair him with Triple J. Uh, that seems too tough, though. Orlando, no. Hmm, this is tough. If I had to pick a 15, uh, the Spurs. Yeah, let's go with the Spurs. I want to see the Spurs, New, the Thunder, the Pelicans, the Knicks, and the Pistons really go all out for Joel Embiid. Not if he becomes available, when he becomes available, because it's tracking in that direction. Hope you all enjoyed this mailbag episode. If you've made it this far, please subscribe and also help us build the community. I'm asking everyone who's a regular subscriber, recommend us to people or shout us out. Ratings, reviews, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, um, commenting, liking every video. I try to respond to as many comments as possible, but if I don't, just, again, you're, you're trying to help the algo there. Uh, join our Discord, buy a bunch of merch, 
from us. There's also super thanks on YouTube if you want to support the podcast that way. We will never, I don't think we'll ever, especially because Grant and I are very fortunate to be where we are career wise. I don't think we'll ever do a Patreon, as some people have asked to uh, us to start. I want all the content and I don't want some people to pay for it while others aren't. So if you want to throw merch by but just a bunch of shit ton of merch we make very little money off of that so the youtube super thanks might be a better way to support the show um but yes thank everyone who subscribes tell people others to subscribe and until next time and as always i leave you all with a shout out to the one the only the indelible the one who's still floating around in free agency inexplicably frank Mueller. peanut